the place I laser etched out is H3, which was the most controversial build until the Honolulu Rail Transit got built. And it has caused a lot of damage to not just the ecosystem, but to the land. And it's changed the the Kaneohe, Kailua, Lanikai area that the H3 goes to. And it's become an easy access point for tourists. This area is now more accessible. So now there's a lot of Airbnbs in that area. You know, there was buses of tourists to stop at these white sand beaches that are now famous. And it was all about access. And this image definitely shows how the roads can really scar some of the most sacred landscapes in Hawaii. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 225th episode, Leah Schrettenthaler joined me to talk about her work. She is a MFA graduate or soon-to-be graduate of the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and we talk a bit about her work, which is actually based off of where she's from in Hawaii. She documents the land and explores ideas of the impact of man-made structures and the built environment. We talk a little bit about the process where she's able to collaborate with her partner and artist, Tom Dahlside. So we talk a little bit about how that process works in making new work. We also get pretty real about graduating in a pandemic and how, you know, many artists out there in school are working away towards a thesis exhibition and unfortunately can't exhibit their work as planned. And we talk a bit about strategies that Leah is exploring and setting up a exhibition and, and working through that and pretty inspiring in terms of thinking about how to move forward. So again, that's all coming up in the interview. Of course, with that interview coming up, make sure to check out Leah's work at leahschrettenthaler.com. And of course, follow her, check out her work on Instagram at Leah underscore Schrettenthaler. I would note to any interested undergraduate or graduate artists, our 2020 competition is now open. Our juror this year is Tim Kowalczyk, who is a Trump Loy ceramic artist at Tim Ceramics on Instagram if you want to see some of his work or timceramics.com. The competition is open to all currently enrolled or recently graduated MFA, MA, or BFA, BA students in the visual arts. So if you want to find out more information, head to studiobreak.com and look under the student competition page. The application process is as simple as can be. You submit a small PayPal donation, a link to your website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. So check out studiobreak.com under the student competition page for more information. If you're here in Studio Break for the first time, I want to remind you, Studio Break is a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists, and they are all featured on studiobreak.com. You can see there are a plethora of interviews that are archived up there, each with images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and the interviews that you can listen right on studiobreak.com, or just click that link and subscribe in a variety of formats. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, so you can always do that to stay up to date, and also be sure to like us and follow us. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram at studio underscore break, and on Twitter at studio break. And with announcements out of the way, here is our interview with Leah Schrettenthaler. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Leah Schrettenthaler. How are you this morning? I'm great. How are you, David? Excellent. You know, we're 
excited to finally have you feature your work. As you know, we're in the middle of this strange time where there's no exhibition. So I think you were scheduled to have something and then, you know, here we are. So tell me real quick, where, where are you joining us from today? Um, so I'm currently located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Nice sunny day today. <laughs> where they still have in public voting. Yeah. This will be a time capsule for future ancients that listen to old podcasts, I guess, and be like, what are they talking about? Yeah. And I I don't know. We'll see if that stays in the the podcast, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But we were talking earlier. At some point, I I started getting alohas and other uh, missives. So I was like, oh, you know, perhaps we've got uh, somebody that's not from the mainland. So where are you from originally? So I was born and raised in Hawaii. And ever since coming to the mainland, I've always used aloha and mahalo in my emails or in my writing to kind of bring the culture I grew up in with me, even though I'm very, very far from home. Mm-hmm. It's that warmth that I miss in Hawaii that I bring to the snowy Midwest. <laughs> well, and I think, again, it's going to be pretty interesting to think about your work in the environment, given you know our, our current quarantine situation. So you are from Hawaii. What did you do when you were growing up in Hawaii? Did you make a lot of art? But you think of Hawaii as this picturesque place and you have tourists taking photographs and everything like that. So surely you weren't taking photographs when you were a child. Yeah. So the first thing, um, I I refer to myself as native to Hawaii. I know a lot of times when I present my work or I have the aloha or mahalo, everyone thinks that I'm native Hawaiian. And don't get me wrong, I would love to be Native Hawaiian and have that privilege. But I'm definitely a Haole, which is foreigner, a white person, Caucasian person, that's been very fortunate enough to call Hawaii home. And growing up, I always tried to prove that I was from Hawaii. Like I was born here. This and and not be mixed in with the tourists. But a lot of the places that I would hike or surf or swim, you know, you couldn't get around the tourists taking photos. And I turned to photography in the places where the tourists couldn't access. So I would join my friends surfing and take photos of them, not just surfing, but this this underwater world that a lot of tourists didn't feel comfortable in, but as a swimmer, the ocean was my playground. You know, I would do countless ocean swims every year. So I was very comfortable in the water. So it made taking those photos in the water very easy. I would also do hikes that were not really known by tourists and growing up in Hawaii, you know, it was a time before Facebook and social media and geotagging, a lot of the hikes I did, it was friends that told me where the hikes were. And it was almost this rite of passage or knowledge that would be passed to me. Like I had to earn that right to be able to hike this certain hike because a friend had to give me those directions or show me. And it was such a different time and I loved it, you know? So taking photos in these areas that tourists couldn't get to and 
like anybody, I am definitely in awe of Hawaii and that picturesque, mm-hmm. but I, I've always loved the, the land that's not touched or not explored by the media and the propaganda and the, the wealth and even the, the people who kind of bleed the land dry and bleed the materials dry for their own benefit. As an outsider, it seems like something that you would have to embrace. Like, how do you not embrace like being in, in a place? But I think oddly enough, I think a lot of people do that almost no matter where they are in the same way. Like, you know, somehow like Ohio farmland can be somehow majestic too. But it seems like, again, that was something that was, you know, like a huge impact on, on the way that you experienced growing up as being outside and being active. Like I said, I grew up swimming and surfing, but I also did triathlons. I ran cross country and track and it was just this beautiful childhood that I didn't realize how lucky I was until I came to the mainland. All those experiences of being outside has really shaped who I am mentally and really physically too, because you have to be active. <laughs> to surf, yeah. Done it once as a tourist. <laughs> it's fun. It's so much fun. I miss it. I've, I am thinking about trying lake surfing here, mm-hmm. but I'm always cold. <laughs> so I don't know how well I'll do, but I thought about getting my board shipped up here. So at least I would have that sense of Hawaii without being in Hawaii. So to think about it, like relative to your art background, was that something that, you know, started influencing you, the the landscape and, and kind of thinking about that and, you know, exploring that in like, say, you know, junior high school, high school type environments? Yeah. You know, I got into photography in high school. I needed a class just to fill my schedule. And I said, well, why not just try photography? I love looking at old family photos. And I just fell in love with that process of, of film photography, working behind the camera. And it was fun to go around and taking photos of places that meant so much to me when I was younger. So for example, my mom is retired military. And so that's how she was stationed in Hawaii right before I was born. And so that's how I became born and raised in Hawaii. And I, because she was military, I had access to a lot of military bases. So we had access to Ford Island, which is in Pearl Harbor. Ford Island is a place where you have to be military to, to get on the island. And because I had that privilege and access, I was able to take photos of an area that is so important to World War II and Hawaii history. And I loved having the special access that not a lot of people have to be able to capture And so in high school, I used that in probably almost every photography project I did. And I became really loose with my process and just enjoyed what would happen. So, for example, if I went out with my friends surfing to take photos, you know, I had a point and shoot film underwater camera, $13.00. If I ended up losing it, oh, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it wasn't a big deal. That whole process has helped me to kind of loosen up 
and stay loosened up as I've gotten older, uh, just letting things happen. If nature wants to take your camera, just <laughs> try to let it. <laughs> well, I'm curious too, was that all like digital experiences in terms of photography or did you have any opportunities to work analog as a very novice photographer that relies on photography to make my work. It's weird. Cause I, you know, went through that transition. So it, it, you know, having recently bought a, a decent camera in the last couple of years, it's like, wow, this is, you know, like I remember when floppy disks were like this amazing invention and they took awful images, but everybody started transferring to digital. So it's weird to, for me to think about that transition, you know, my high school had a dark room and so we did film and then I would switch to digital, I think my junior year, but that was the only time I moved into digital hmm. and I haven't, <laughs> I haven't gone back since it's because of the, the film process. Honestly, it's this like meditation being in the dark room, having the chemicals, having the water running and I really have to understand the camera and what I want to capture. And I'm constantly still learning how to do that. So for me, digital is not out of the question in the future. It's just never enticed me as much as film has. And, you know, I can still take my film and scan it in and do digital things to it. I will say during this whole coronavirus, being attached to my computer for meetings to my thesis writing. I don't think I'll go to digital anytime soon. <laughs> but <laughs> because honestly, I use the darkroom during this time as this escape from the technology. And I can pretend that the world doesn't exist outside. So <laughs> uh, film has always captured my heart and it continued to when I was an undergrad as well. My program at University of South Dakota was all film, even color film. We did slides, we did color negatives, we did alternative process. You know, my photo professor, John Banaschik, he did all old school processes. We didn't even have a digital printer in our photo area. It was in the graphic design area. And when John would do slideshows, he still had the Kodak carousels. That's all he used. It's definitely a medium that's close to my heart. Well, there's just something about physically manipulating something, you know? I mean, again, I I don't own an iPad. I don't have a stylus tool. It just seems like a toy. I don't know. That sounds terrible. I'm sure <laughs> definitely going to have to like eat that or track that back because there'll be plenty of cool artists that are like, what? <laughs> I think artists kind of figure out what appeals to them and what doesn't and there's certainly times where we're more open to learning new processes, you know, as we were just kind of describing, I mean, everybody's kind of in that distance learning or teaching mode or communicating. So, I mean, even that's a new process, but there is something to be said about manipulating something that you can touch and it's just a slightly different feel, you know, mm -hmm. I'm especially curious, you know, like, so you were just talking about, you know, working in these new processes as an undergrad, was it easy to make that decision that that's what you wanted to kind of, you know, I'm going to study art or I'm going to do photography and one day become like a, a photographer of, you know, like so that somebody could hire like for, you know, events and stuff like that. I don't know. I might have to yeah. edit that because that sounds terrible. I'm like, you're going to take portraits at the mall. Is that what you're <laughs> aspiring to do? Um, Always. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I, it wasn't until junior year that I realized that you could get a degree in photography. I went to a, a very prestigious private high school in Hawaii. It's called Iolani. It is very, everyone is very, very smart. It's, and very athletic. And so it went well for my swimming background, but I struggled in school and photo was, was that niche for me. And once I found out they could have photography as a major, I was like, let's do it. On actually on my recruiting trip at University of South Dakota, I told the swimming coaches, I need to meet the photo professor. And I had my portfolio and <laughs> I'm embarrassed by it now because I didn't realize how casual it was. But I was like, oh my goodness, I need to make sure I'm admitted or I'm good enough or my work fits with this program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember going up into the photo room and John had to come out of his office and he was taking his, you know, his time, which is a nap or he's making phone calls from uh, his office phone. Cause he doesn't have a cell phone mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> he comes out and I was like, here's my portfolio. Will I fit in this program? And, you know, he's so sweet. He's like, yeah, this is great. You know, very <laughs> positive. And once I got to university of South Dakota, I took his class my second semester because his, his photo one class always filled up. And my mind was just blown because he introduced so many different photographers to me so many different processes that I had no idea were out there in the, in the photo world. So I knew I made the right choice in having photo as my degree. And, you know, like every young artist photographer, the whole, I want to work for Nashville geographic. (laughs) Those are the photos we grew up with, like the magazines and the traveling images just enticed so many people and like myself, but It wasn't until my junior year that I realized, you know, I want to teach art. Like I love art and I love all the mediums and grand photography is how I got started in the art world, but I want to share my passion and I want to love what I do. And that's been a main push for like my career is whatever I'm doing, I want to love what I'm doing. I want to love my job. I want it to feel not like a job every day. And so that's how I got into art education. And it was also to a way to keep art in my life because I saw my junior year, so many people graduate and they had phenomenal shows, both MFA and BFA shows. And they didn't continue their art making after their show. If I become an art teacher, I can share my passion and this could be a way I can continue to make art. And and that was really important to me. You know, I'm curious because you were talking earlier about some of the photos that you were, you know, taking when you'd be out on kind of like these secret hikes or documenting uh, friends and, and things like that. What type of work did you start making, you know, when you started learning all these new processes? And especially I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in terms of that kind of like, maybe capstone exhibition that you might've had uh, for your undergraduate degree? Yeah. So in high school, it was obviously just um, underwater photography. When I got into college for undergrad, 
although I was experimenting with color photography and alternative processes, my BFA exhibition was black and white silver gelatin prints that were actually nudes. And my nude period, I'll call it, lasted throughout grad school. And it happened just because one of the swimmers wanted to do some like artistic nudes in the forest. I was excited by this kind of danger aspect mm-hmm. <laughs> of, are we going to get caught? Is anyone going to find us if they're hiking through this, this forest? The weather elements that were involved in it, if it was snowing or if it was 20 degrees, what animals <laughs> might come and interact with us, I guess, mostly bugs. The new photography paired with what I was learning in art history. And so a lot of the paintings that I saw of, you know, Adam and Eve, the paintings of Titian and Rubin were always my favorites. And how to kind of create these mythological images. And for me, it was just aesthetic now looking back at it, I'm like, man, I really should have researched more. I should have understood in the contemporary context how my nudes fit into this contemporary world. And that's something you just learn by by getting older. <laughs> also, too, because I started going to these portfolio reviews and a lot of the reviewers did not want to see nudes. And... I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize if people are doing nudes today that are successful, how are they going about it? How are they writing? But, you know, as an undergrad, it was a great way to explore work with models. A lot of my models were swimmers or friends. And then for my BFA show, I framed them in a very sculptural way. It was because I took a sculpture class And as an undergrad, we have to take the first level of every class. And I took sculpture and this class just transformed my way of thinking about materials and how you view art. And I framed these images in this bubble glass frame. And it was a way to push the viewer to move around the frame because there would be glare from that bubble frame. Mm -hmm. Because I had nudes in nature, I started welding bronze rod to create these vines that would crawl up the wall. And some of the vines actually went over the frames. It was a way for me to bring in this fabricated nature. Well, it's, it's so interesting when artists talk about, you know, these experiences of maybe just one, you know, one in class, you know, something like that, because I think a lot of those kind of big shifts happen, you know, just from that one experience. And then you start seeing your work in a totally different way. Oh yeah. I mean, that sculpture class, it, it changed my practice for the better. To be honest, it's actually the class where I met my husband. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) He was the teaching assistant. So he was helping out the professor and I, I asked the teaching assistant for help and we started talking and hitting it off and began dating and then we're now married. <laughs> so cool, cool. yeah. And it's, it's been great because he has a sculpture MFA 
I'm also into art and we have built an iron cupola, which is an iron furnace. And we did an iron pour last year. He's also a great source for my work. Like right currently he's a fabricator and anything I need to build, I ask him how to go about it. And he has all these different ways of how to build the pedestals to the frames to my artist book container. And it's, it's been great. I have to really give him a shout out. His name's Tom Dalside. He gave up a 10 year track sculpture professor job so I could go to grad school because grad school was always my goal. I really wanted to get my MFA degree and he's helped me get through this very difficult, interesting, emotional mm-hmm. <laughs> degree time. Well, and you know, again, that's such an interesting, you know, way to think about how life unfolds too. You know, there's those things that you just can't maybe anticipate, obviously when you're, you know, enrolling or just deciding, you know, like, I guess I'm going to do this as my major or something. So it's interesting to see how those paths unfold. I'm curious, especially then, you know, you were just talking about, you know, the importance of you going on to pursue an MFA degree. Was that like a straight shot or did you work at like Annie M's pretzels or, you know, (laughs) something where you realize like, oh, right, nobody... Nobody in this larger world is like, oh, wow, if I talk. But what did you what did you do afterwards? So after I graduated, I took three years off and that was always my goal. I was going to. To teach and I wanted some experience. I wanted obviously a, a steady paycheck and I just needed a break from school. But most importantly, I wanted to see if. I could continue making art without the support of a university. And I could kind of, it was difficult. We would have to go to the college my husband taught at to use their shop, or I would have access to other people's dark rooms, but it never felt like my space. And I wanted to see if I would have the drive to continue making art without facilities or equipment. How could I continue? And if I could prove to myself that I could, I knew I could have that drive in grad school. And so after three years of teaching, I felt ready to apply. I didn't have a lot of work made between that time, but I was ready mentally, I felt. And I think in grad school, you you need to decide if you're mentally ready because it's full of mind games. It's full of self-doubt. It's full of lots of voices. And you need to be a strong person before coming into grad school because I wanted something very specific from grad school. And I know a lot of people go get their MFA so they can teach college. And that was just a benefit of getting an MFA. It wasn't my goal. My MFA degree is a very selfish decision where it is for me to be a better artist. I wanted the skills and the knowledge, the access to professors, to equipment, to 
time and space to really develop my work. And I wanted to come out of this experience as a professional contemporary artist that can continue working. And I feel like I have, I've, I've gained the skills I set out to, to get. I know how to write. I know how to read to inform my research. So that's kind of how I got into grad school and what's led me to now. Well, and so you kind of talked a little bit about trauma here. Did they just trash you like the second week of, uh, <laughs> you know, your your first studio visit, you're all excited. And then somebody's like, why are you making this? You got to get rid of this. I don't know. I think some people might have see it as trauma. For me, my first critique with all the grads, it was more of confusion because I, for me, I want to understand where everyone was coming from because what I presented I wasn't getting the feedback that I expected Mm -hmm. and so what really helped me was sitting down with one of the professors Yevgenia who's the metalsmith area head and talking it out with her and because I was open and wanting to understand where, where my colleagues were coming from she was receptive of that in helping me understand their viewpoint. Because for me, I was too close to the project at that time. And it was, you know, my first critique in quite a while with so many people. And I I wasn't used to to that interaction yet. And I think the, the best thing that I've kept in mind too was people are gonna have their opinions but you need to take what will work for you. And what's helped me through this program is reminding myself the intent of my work. And if I keep that intent, then I can take the critiques that will help with that intent. I mean, don't get me wrong. Not every day is great in grad school. (laughs) There's a lot of different personalities and it's not even personalities with your cohort or the other years, but it's also personalities of professors. It's just been kind of crazy. I will say everyone's grad school experience is different, even the people in my year. And it just depends on who you work with and what you give to your program and give to your studies. The more energy you put into it, I think the more you'll get back. It's definitely taught me about how to navigate the different personalities and try to understand where everyone's coming from. I think the worst part is what I found actually in grad school is, you know, grad program will will say, oh, we're, we're interdisciplinary or we offer this and that. Like, for example, they, they can say, oh, we offer a graduate dark room. And maybe that's like one of the most important things in a grad program for you. And then you get there and everything's going great. Everything's fine. What they advertised is, is exactly what's happening. And then all of a sudden, for example, oh, no, we don't have a graduate dark room anymore. You have to share with undergrads. And I'm not saying like 
undergrads are bad. I'm just saying like, if the graduate darkroom is very important to you and then all of a sudden they take it away, it's hard to, to stay in a program, honestly, if that was an important aspect of, of choosing that school. So all I can say is, you know, when you apply to grad school, be ready, do your research as much as possible. If I was to do it all over again, I would definitely research funding, like research funding. And actually during this time is the perfect opportunity for people to research graduate programs because during the coronavirus, it's not just how the school treats the incoming possible graduate students. It's how they're treating their third years. And I applaud the schools who have not canceled their thesis shows. I applaud the schools that have actually just postponed those thesis shows because that thesis, at least for my school, that's all the professors talk about for three years. They, they tell us to pick our classes based off what our possible thesis is going to be pick our materials based off what our possible thesis is going to be like every decision we make has to be towards our thesis. And it's, it's so important the schools who are making sure that that thesis show happens for those third years. Absolutely. And again, it's just such a difficult time. I can't imagine, you know, if I was in the same position, having spent all this, all this time and energy, and then to kind of be in this position of limbo, you know? So I'm curious, especially to think about, you know, like your time, you know, in graduate school, were there other artists and, um, you know, influences that you might've had in terms of maybe, you know, even art theory or maybe artists that were kind of able to emulate something that you wanted to kind of aspire to with your work? Oh man, all, all the time. Just a couple. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I will say like one of the programs that, that actually helped me was a program that we have that's called Artists Now. It's a free lecture series every Wednesday night. You know, artists from all over, really the world, come and talk for about an hour and a half. And, you know, the artwork can relate to mine or not, but I just love how they present it, what they talk about, and even the material choices that they use have inspired me. But I will say, I, I have to give a shout out to Krista Slavanos. I probably said her last name wrong. Her work was introduced to me about two and a half years ago and she laser etches into her prints as well, but in, in a different way. And ever since being exposed to her work, oh God, every body of work she does is just this phenomenal approach. You know, it's very sculptural um, and then she's a painter and she is an interdisciplinary artist and her research that goes along with her work is so inspiring. And then the writing, it just, it's that perfect layered cake mm -hmm. <laughs> that I want to be. So she's definitely like a contemporary artist that has inspired me. And what's great is like, I can reach out to her and talk to her. And I think having artists like that is so important right now. You know, I do believe in looking back throughout history and looking at those artists, but it makes a huge difference to have a personal connection with a contemporary artist. And I've been able to connect with these 
artists like Krista and others through competitions. And, you know, we'll be in the same show together and we'll just connect on social media. And it's been awesome to ask them for advice. Like uh, Joni Sternbach is a wet plate photographer, does surfing photos and, you know, having her as a mentor friend is, is awesome. And she's been in the photo game for a while and I get to talk to her about her process of how she got her studio to how she funds her projects, what she applies with for artists and residencies, you know, and to me, that's so important to understand how to be a practicing artist. And so I value those people so much more than, than, you know, the theories or the old photographers who have passed because I look up to people like Joni and Krista and I want to be in their shoes and I want to figure out how to get to that place. And that's what's helping me drive forward. And the theory and the, the art critic books come into play to get to that spot, but knowing how to do it, I think is, is definitely more important for me right now. Well, something I'm really curious about too, is talked a little bit about the process of some of these artists, you know, how did you start changing your approaches in, in terms of, you know, maybe kind of more towards the, the current work? Cause I know that there's a number of different things that you're doing in terms of maybe like your, your thesis, but then also some other areas of work that you've explored different processes. Yeah. So in graduate school, I've definitely wanted to make sure I was open to any type of process I learned in undergrad to something that I might be learning at that time. And so laser etching, that process just came about because one, I use a laser for casting, actually. We'll laser etch into some foam board and we'll cast right into it. And the iron is so hot that it'll just burn out the foam and the mold has its impression already. So it's a really quick way to make molds and it's precise. The laser etcher from sculpture, I then used for photo because I wanted to actually cut out these areas in my photos. And what happened during that process was the materiality was exposed. So that was great. It also pushed me to continue making work about Hawaii. So anytime I went back to Hawaii, I was working on the photos, but I was also collecting data or objects or materials that might inform this work differently. I, my husband and I took molds of the lava field and basically we take impressions and it's a way for us to not disrupt the landscape, change the landscape in any way, but still be able to recreate it when we come back to the mainland. For example, lava is actually illegal to take. Mm -hmm. It's connected to the goddess Pele, which is a volcano goddess, and it's also bad luck. And, you know, growing up in Hawaii, I was so tired of people with their little Ziploc baggies and, and taking lava rocks. And I realized that they're trying to prove to people I was there. 
I came to Hawaii. I was on the lava fields. And I was like, well, what if we were just to take a mold of the lava field and then cast it in bronze or iron? And then now these people have this object. So in a way, it became this Chotsky journey, but it's it's grown past that where now the cast lava pieces are framed in koa, which is a native Hawaiian wood that we purchase on the big island from Kamuela Woods. And my husband frames these lava pieces. And we've started having the lava actually look like it's burnt through the wood. So it's not being contained anymore to show this, this mana, which means power in Hawaiian. We cast it in bronze aluminum. So it has this gold color to it. We just seal it. We don't patina it or stain it. You know, it's to show that gold of this is a goddess. This has power. And then when we do cast lava pieces in iron, Iron has very similar properties to lava. It has like the same temperature. What happens in a cupola, uh, there's a slag hole. And that's just kind of like crap metal. And that kind of tells us when the cupola is ready to tap or ready to to get our pot of, of iron, you know, out of the cupola. And the slag, every time I've gone to an iron port, it, it's porous. It's very glass. There's glass like, and these are the things, these are the qualities that I see in the lava fields. And so that's why we've cast stuff in iron as well. But these lava molds became documents for us of another way to document the landscape without photographs. And so many people have documented the lava fields and in 2018 when the eruptions were happening you know there's photos everywhere but i haven't seen the lava fields replicated in a sculpture before and so i feel like my husband and i are, are one of the first to really utilize the texture and the flow of the lava fields to recreate this power of of mana of the mythology of Pele to kind of even the sacredness of the land. Cause there's a whole history of the land being sold right when, right after Hawaii became a state, Hawaii sold a lot of the lava fields, even though they're unstable to make money. And that's why so many homes are getting destroyed is because the land is cheap. And that's kind of the only place for people to be able to afford to build a house. So there's so much context to that. And creating molds of the lava field, although it stemmed as first kind of research for my photo work, it also came from what I saw when I was younger. And it's grown into so much more than that, where now it's this partnership with my husband and I creating this work off of just trying to gather information (laughs) during one of our trips. So I was going to say when you were describing it, it really strikes me the way that you almost talked about kind of like adventuring, if you will, when you were younger, you know, like, is that kind of the process in terms of, you know, you maybe have all of these, like this umbrella of ideas of, you know, what's important to you and what you want to talk about. And then it's almost kind of seeking out a real experience to 
maybe try to document. I'm, I'm especially curious, you know, like if we think about it for somebody that doesn't know your process, you know, like, are you then out, you know, hiking or kind of at a destination to kind of, you know, take a thousand photographs and then weed it down to like four or something? So most of the times when I go back home, my husband's with me and we're hiking together to have a partner there to be safe. And walking and hiking is totally a part of our practice because we are gathering information of the landscape to the plants to, you know, I'll even recount personal experience I've had to him. So the walks and the hikes, we're actually talking about future artwork. We are talking about how we can put this texture into a piece or what this texture means, or how can we bottle up this place? And I hate to use this word, but contain this place, preserve this place, and even share this place. And the hikes and the walks is our sketching process in a way, but it's done verbally. And I'm not a great sketcher, my husband is, but it's such a a great experience. And it really wasn't until I started reading Liz Wells' Land Matters. There's a section on walking and the narration of when you walk and take photos, it becomes this narrative. And it wasn't until I read that section that I realized, oh my gosh, this is what my husband and I do when we visit and walk and hike the landscape. And we're talking about what we see, about what could be an art piece. We're narrating a future piece or we're telling a story soon to be in a piece. Well, it's interesting to think about how that can be kind of extended to a new work in the future as well, you know, because you have like a, you know, an idea that you're going to collaborate on or kind of work through. And then, you know, inevitably there'll be another one that kind of catches fire and it might require a different process but maybe something that's similar in terms of still kind of seeking it out to, you know, figure out what you're going to distill from that experience. Oh, totally. I mean, that's my biggest thing I'm, I'm trying to figure out right now is, you know, the thesis is ending in, in some form. And how do I continue to make work? Because that first year after graduate school is the most crucial for any recent graduate, because a lot of times, more than half of the students who graduate will not make work again. And after five years, they won't make anything. And what I've done with my husband is because of our walks and our collecting and our talks, we're trying to make sure that we're continuing to make art after the fact. And how can this work continue to be built off of the invasive species photo project, because that's also my fear is I will be a one hit wonder (laughs) in the art world. And I really don't want that. Like I want to continue to question and I don't want to rely on this, this certain laser etching process. I want to push myself to have different bodies of work that can, that can fit into different spaces, whether that's museums, galleries, homes, collections. And I'm so excited about what we have collected from Hawaii and how that's turning into new work right now, especially during this, this questionable time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that until 
all this happened. To talk specifically about that body of work, I think that would be kind of maybe interesting to highlight some of the, the differences between some of the photos. I guess I would just start with something that maybe might be more obvious than others, the uh, Waikiki. It's a laser etched silver gelatin print, but it essentially has kind of like a city, maybe again, just kind of dive into details for the for the f- people that are really in the process out there in terms of how this work was made. Yeah, definitely. I actually have a small piece of it in front of me and how this piece got made is very similar to the other pieces in this body of work. What I do is, you know, I develop the film, I'll print the image in the dark room, and then I take each copy and I scan it in. And then I will do an illustrator file that will mask the the built environment. So when I talk about the built environment, I'm talking about like buildings or man-made things. Granted, Waikiki is actually a man-made beach, but I chose not to mask the beach out because that beach is, it has like personal significance to myself and others, as well as historical significance with Ali'i or chiefs. After I mask out the buildings, I then have a steel plate in my laser etcher and I put newsprint on this steel plate and I put magnets around it to keep the newsprint down. And then I'm printing the mast area and the mast area is the area that's going to be laser etched out. That's the burnt area. And the reason why I put the newsprint down is I'm able to create this cutout. And once the laser burns the areas, I can lift a corner of the newsprint up and I slide my photo underneath that newsprint. And then what I do is I line up the holes on the newsprint with the buildings that I want to be etched away. Mm-hmm. And this helps me line up my image. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a perfect process. I have missed. <laughs> I've also had entire images catch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe I just didn't wash the print long enough. We're still not sure, but it's fine. And so after it burns, usually I do two or three passes. And what that means is I'll print it three times and I'll change the power and the speed to depend on like how I want the image to, to look at the end. So some images are very transparent. And you can see through it while others are burnt through. Some have this kind of like brown uh, wood feel to it. And after it prints, I can remove it. And they're actually framed in kind of this shadow box my husband builds. And the photos are pushed away from the back, very printmaker-like, to show the weakening of the material. Because the more space that I burn away the weaker that paper becomes. The structure of the paper is very wrinkly and weak. And so I want to showcase that. So they're kind of wrinkly, little flowy inside the frame. So I wanted to talk about this one, Ko'olau Ridge. Um, I just love the way that the, the shapes contrast each other so much, you know, and again, kind of through that process that you're talking about, you've got these really kind of like hard edge geometric forms that are, you know, certainly identified as man-made kind of juxtaposed with what looks like these mountainous forms. But then there's all this real kind of uh, beautiful kind of texture. So again, it's interesting to me to kind of see that contrast relative to not only the process, but then 
you know, the way that it might elicit uh, somebody that looks at it to think about that relationship, I guess. This is one of my favorites too. It was one of the first pieces that I did for my series when I first started. And the Kolau mountain range is one of the most iconic mountains in Hawaii. It is associated to so many chiefs. It's sacred. It has, you know, mythology, ghost stories. It is unforgiving. If you hike it, you got to be very, very careful. And there's places to hike. It has scared the living oh, life out of me. But it is just so majestic. And the place I laser etched out was the most controversial built until the Honolulu Rail Transit got built. And it has caused a lot of damage to not just the ecosystem, but to the land. And it's changed the the Kaneohe, Kailua, Lanikai area that the H3 goes to. And it's become an easy access point for tourists. And it's this area is now more accessible. And so now there's a lot of Airbnbs in that area. You know, there was buses of tourists to stop at these white sand beaches that are now famous. And it was all about access. And this image definitely shows that how the roads can really scar some of the most sacred landscapes in Hawaii and the Kolaus, they're strong. They're, they're a powerful marker in the landscape, but they can still be, you know, blown up and tamed and possibly contained through these buildings. Well, another one that I was going to ask about too is, you know, and again, maybe it brings back some of the figurative works that you're kind of exploring as well is the uh, Green Sand Beach one, where again, it makes me jealous that I'm uh, trapped here in the Midwest during quarantine, because I think it would be a much, <laughs> much more amazing kind of experience. But again, it's interesting because then all the people are the, the areas that are kind of etched. So it's not necessarily, you know, a man-made object, I'm not thinking of a good word here. <laughs> I love this one. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from professors saying I need to remove it from this series, but I can't. I mean, the Green Sand Beach, it will never ha have buildings like Waikiki, but there is this constant sense of human activity and human eroding <laughs> this, this sacred place. And even though this piece has as people every time I go back I realize like I need to keep this piece in this project it's that double-edged sword so when I go back I always hike green sand beach on the big island and there's locals who are trying to make money and it, they have a cash business where they have people pay them twenty dollars and they will drive the people in pickup trucks and kind of like pack them in the back of the pickup truck and drive this rocky landscape to this green sand beach. The hike is only two miles. It's dry. It's, I think it's pretty easy, but you know, the sun beats down on you. You need to bring lots of water and you carry everything in with you. But it's the sense of like this easy access that locals are doing and they, they almost have to because it's a way for them to make money 
and to survive, but they're also eroding the landscape by allowing easy access to this place. And in Hawaiian mythology, when Pele, the volcano goddess's heart broke, it created this beach. It's so sacred to me. It's so special. And it goes back to when I was younger, I was on the Big Island first swimming state competition and a family friend told us about this beach. You know, this wasn't on any tourist brochures, any movies, anything. And it was this like privilege to know where this place was. And it was sacred. It was shared in this very personal, private way. And that's how I've always thought of it. And now with social media and people driving up to this beach, that sacredness is is dwindling. And every time I go back to this beach, that beach is getting more and more crowded with people. There's drones flying everywhere. There's people are bringing beach umbrellas. (laughs) I'm like, no, just go underneath a rock. You're fine. I saw a family come down with a tripod, set it up, take a family photo and then leave. And that just like hurt my soul because when, when I go home, I only take photos for my art. I won't really take photos for social media because I believe in, in savoring this place and really being in that place. And just this moment of, of almost this art happening, this performance where the only documentation of this place is by telling about it. And you had to be there to experience it. That's how I've approached a lot of the places in Hawaii and especially the green sand beach. So we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but you know, you currently have a, a thesis show that's not on, not accessible. Is that correct? Yes. They canceled it during our first week of spring break. And there was no mention of rescheduling or their, their solution is an online gallery. Like, like many schools. Are you like scouring for like, you know, all sorts of opportunities to make sure that this work that you've been, you know, so busy producing and and exploring, um, you know, that's so important to you. I mean, are you finding and looking for venues to be able to kind of share it and, you know, have something down the road? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, when they canceled it, I, I got depressed because for me, putting up that show with that closure during for this time, but I... I picked myself back up. I found some different shows to apply this body of work. And then I saw an article on an artist who photographed his paintings throughout the Midwest landscape. And I was like, man, this would be great. Maybe I should just go back to Hawaii and and hang out there with all my artwork and photograph it in the landscape. That got nixed real fast. (laughs) Uh, But I was talking with my husband And how could I showcase this work in a very fun, lighthearted way, but with still that closure I needed. And so our house is very small that we rent. It doubles as a studio to like a hangout to even a CrossFit gym. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) a few days ago, we decided that we're going to take the art that's on the living room wall off. We're going to move the couch. We're going to move any of the furniture away from the living room, little hallway nook before the bathroom. 
and I'm going to put up a thesis show. And I was able to purchase some lighting equipment and we're going to kind of do these staged photos with me in front of it. Lighthearted. I'm going to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 you know, cause it's, it's a time period. Sure. But I'm also going to have some really beautiful install shots. And so the things that I was going to have in my thesis show on campus is going to be replicated here in my home. And it's actually this kind of better situation. And I try to look at positives. I try to find the positives in everything. And since my work is about home, and although I'm not home in Hawaii, I have a home here in the Midwest. And so the work about home is now living in my home. It's like, you know, lots of of layers. Yeah, lots of layers, but I'm still able to do the sculptural work that I wanted to put in my thesis show. Last night, my husband and I planned out the pedestals that I was going to have and how many images I was going to put on the wall. And that's been really helpful to keep me going. And then I've also started this materiality book. And it was this way of like, well, if, if galleries are closed for six months, you know, even if I apply to these shows, I might not even have that opportunity right away. So what can I do to kind of create this closure of this work being done without having to be installed? And so I started creating this materiality book that has thin plexi boxes that are eight inches by eight inches, and they contain different materials. So one has laser etched photo, another one has dirt and sawdust and metal dust, and that becomes this human fossil from these dig sites or these building sites. When they build these buildings on the landscape, they're leaving human remnants behind. And so I've created that. I've also pulled in any materials I've collected for this body of work or that has led itself to this body of work. I've encased in these plexi boxes, whether they're resolved or not. And all these, I I call them pages, even though they're each their own object, they're going to be contained in a fabricated shipping container because everything in Hawaii has to be shipped all these like man-made materials and I've created these man-made materials in these pages. And for me, this is my thesis show contained in a box. It even marks like my three years in graduate school that's contained in a box that doesn't need a gallery space. It can live on a shelf. It can be pulled out and handled. And for me, this is the, that closure It's also the next step with my artwork and how to continue in these times, continue in the space that I have and continue with my research. And that book has really just kept my spirit alive during this time of constant bad news. And I'm so excited. It's, it's honestly, it's almost better than a thesis show. Because I now have goals that go past the show. And I think that's so important for me in, in continuing to be an artist, continuing to make work. 
Yeah, and it seems like, again, there's so many avenues that you can take this. So I think that's something that's really interesting. And then just the way that you're thinking about it in terms of it seemed to kind of express the entire you know interview that you know you don't want to be someone that certainly winds up working at a bank and you know stops making all artwork so you know to kind of have that ambition to kind of figure out how am i going to make this work given the circumstances is kind of inspiring you know i think that the hopefully the positive is that artists are going to figure out new paths forward through these limitations that we have now like like you're doing in terms of setting up your your thesis or moving on to some of these new bodies of work so Oh yeah, and it's it's going to separate the the art world, you know, and artists who continue to make and artists that just give up and and allow the limitations that the situation has has brought to completely halt their practice. And I'm really excited to see the work that's been produced during this time and I I want to be a part of that conversation so badly. Well, so before we wrap up here, you know, you were just describing, you know, some of this work, where can people find it, especially, you know, as you're, you know, taking all these install shots and, you know, essentially building out this experience, um, is, is Instagram the best place to keep up with you or. Yeah. So right now, Instagram, it's just my first and last name, which is Leah Schrettenthaler. I'm fortunate enough to be the only Leah Schrettenthaler out there (laughs) and You know, I I love when people ask me questions. I'm glad to show them my process more. I try to curate my Instagram to be very polished with the things that I post. And I'm very excited to share these install shots and the book on Instagram. And then it will make its way to my website. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your work, your process. Hopefully it gives artists uh, something to think about while they're in quarantine and, you know, thinking about their own work. So again, I, I always look forward to talking to, uh, you know, people, uh, every week. And again, I really appreciate you also applying for the, uh, competition. Again, it was so exciting to have your work selected by, uh, Erica Behes for our, uh, show this last year. So, and again, it, I guess timed out well, <laughs> It did. And thank you so much, David, for having this podcast and then having this competition because these these student competitions are so important for us. It helps us with our practice and to to be better artists. So thank you so much. Thank you. Aloha. Ahuiho. Malamapono. Until we meet again, take care. Thanks once again, Aaliyah, for joining me. Be sure and check out our website, leahschrettenthaler.com, to see some of the work that's available. And, of course, you can also find her on Instagram at leah underscore schrettenthaler. Be sure to follow her there and stay up to date with new work and exhibitions. Just a note, again, that our 2020 competition is now open. Our juror this year is Tim Kowalczyk, a Trumploy ceramic artist. You can see his work at Tim Ceramics. Dot com And of course, follow him and see his work on Instagram at Tim Ceramics. He'll be selecting five artists from each of the categories. Again, that's undergraduate and graduate for a total of 10. 
So that's open to all 2D and 3D artists, anybody that's currently enrolled in a visual arts program or recently graduated. So if you unfortunately aren't showing your work because you don't have an exhibition space, we're upping it to five this year to help uh, share your work. So if you're interested in applying, it's quite simple. You go to studiobreak.com, look under the student competition page. Again, you'll see that it just takes a small donation and an email with your website and or your Instagram account for review. So be sure and check that out. And of course, if you know anybody that should apply or we want to help spread the word, we would super appreciate it. If you're here on Studio Break for the first time, visit studiobreak.com and check out some of the archived episodes. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork and links to their websites. You can, of course, listen right on Studio Break as you're clicking through images, or you can hit that subscribe button and go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play to check out more episodes. And, of course, if you want to stay up to date with Studio Break, be sure and give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And, of course, on Twitter at Studio Break. If you enjoyed the podcast, too, please give us a shout-out or help spread the word. Again, there's a lot of artists trying to figure out what to listen to when they're in the studio. You could help them out and earn some karma points, so we appreciate it. I'd like to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his work at SkylarMail.net. If you want to see some of my paintings, go to DavidLinaway.com or find me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter at David Linaway. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. So again, I hope artists out there are staying safe. We'll talk to you real soon.